where Jesus is with his disciples and knows of the imminence of his, of his death. And so in Matthew 26, 36, we read this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this, cannot pass, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into, into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great you could join us here today and be with us. Uh, especially if you're new or you're visiting or someone's dragged you along. Thanks for being here. We do uh, hope you enjoy your time with us. As Jess said, we're about to kick off our time in the Bible looking at a story, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Before, before we look at the Bible, I want to pray, and praying is simply talking to God. I want to talk to God, and I want to ask Him that He would help me to speak really clearly, that you understand what I'm saying, but also that He'd help you to understand who He is today as He speaks through me. So how about I lead us in talking to God? So let's uh, bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you so much that you are here, you're among us in, in your, with your presence, that you have brought each of us here for a purpose and a plan, and, and there's no accident that each of us are here this morning. I want to pray that you would help me to speak really clearly, that you'd help me to say only what you want me to say, that I would, I would speak the, the truth of you and your love and the cross really clearly, and you would help us as listeners to hear what you want us to know. Lord, I believe you have a message for each of us today, and you want us to know that. And so I ask that we would be able to calm our minds, calm the distractions, and give us a peace so we can just hear you speak to us and address us. So Lord, use me and help us to listen well. Amen. You know, I think in life uh, there are times where I can, I can look at things, observe what's going on, and not think too deeply about them and just really move on. And I don't really stop and ponder or appreciate when I do this, I think I sort of skip through life, not really understanding what really is going on in front of me, and I really miss out on the beauty of what is happening in front of me. And it's only when I stop and, and stop and think and try to engage and understand and get behind what's going on that I actually appreciate the awe and the beauty. And this has happened to me a few times where I have, where I have stopped and tried to understand in a deeper way and have a, graph, a far greater appreciation of what's going on. See, I love sport. I love sport. 
And, uh, but for a long time, I could not get into the sport of AFL. I just couldn't. It just looks so messy. Um, I always think, why can't they just pick up the ball? Or uh, why can't they tackle properly? And why, why pass the ball by punching? That just seems so weird. Just pass the ball. Uh, why, why give you a point when you miss the big sticks? Like, it's thanks for trying. Here's one point. Um, and why wear such short shorts? Is that a choice? I don't know. And it all seemed a bit weird to me. I didn't really appreciate it. I saw the game, thought it was weird, moved on. That was until I was playing cricket and a bunch of the Sydney Swans players joined my team. And uh, I got to know them and they were lovely guys and they were so fit and strong. I remember we were playing cricket one summer with them. And it was like 40 degrees at the park and uh, middle of summer and uh, I was playing with a bunch of young guys and uh, all these young guys had their shirts off, got their summer bodies out, you know, basking in the sun, pretending it was hot, but they just want to show their bodies off. Anyway, the Swans players came down, took their shirts off, everyone put their shirts back on again. The Swans, <laughs> Swans boys are here, shirts back on please. Um, these guys, these guys were fit and they were tough and they were lean and strong and they were so coordinated. They could bat, bowl, um, catch. They were in the field encouraging everyone, running around everyone. And uh, it was, they were supreme athletes of the highest level. I was chatting to one of them and I said, oh, what sort of training do you do? And they were saying that just before Christmas, uh, the, the last sort of final training session was they had to do 100, 100 meter sprints in a row. And they had a certain amount of time to get through that 100-meter sprint. And then they had one minute to get back to the start again and then go again 100 times over. That's what they did to do. He was also saying they had, they'd run about 16 kilometers per game. And that's not just straight running. That's running and sprinting as well as catching and kicking and tackling and passing. These guys were incredible athletes. So after chatting with these guys and seeing them in action and watching a few of their games, I actually got to understand the game. I appreciated it enjoyed the game of AFL so much more and the athleticism that goes into it. I still don't get the short shorts, but hey, they can roll with that, right? They can leave them with that one. And as I was saying, there, there, we, can, we can see and hear certain things in life and not think much about what's going on, but if we understand what's going on, we appreciate it so much more, I think. We can assume we know, but often we don't. You know, I think this is often the case with, with Christianity and Jesus sometimes. I'm sure that if we asked most people, most people would say they know about Jesus. They know that he died. They know something of the Easter story and Good Friday and hot cross buns a little bit. Most of us know something of the story. But what, what does it all mean? What is, what, what is the story of Jesus? Why did he die? Why did he have to die? And does it really matter? And why are Christians so much on about a death? A death of a man, death of Jesus. Is it such a big deal? Does it really matter? Well, today, for the next, for the next 30 minutes, I want to show you, I want to walk you through, I want to show you why it matters. I want to show you why Jesus had to die. I want to show you why it's the center of the Christian faith. And my hope is... And as we look at this story, as we look at the cross, that you'll see who God is and what he's truly like, but also, more importantly, who you are and what you're like in light of him. And today as we look at this, my prayer would be that you don't simply leave here knowing, oh yeah, good story, I know more of that, but you would see that this event, this Jesus and his death is actually personal, it's for you. It's about you. It's not just an event in history, 
It's for you. I became a follower of Jesus uh, in my teenage years. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family at all. Uh, my grandmother died um, when I was uh, early teens, and my mum thought it'd be a good idea to drag the whole family to church. And so we went. And I remember sitting in these services, uh, similar to this, and zoning out, thinking this is so boring, and nothing was sinking in at all. I knew that who Jesus was. I knew that he died. I knew that he sort of loved me, but you know, or loved the world, and that was it. But it wasn't until one time I listened in and I heard the preacher at the front say that God loved me. And he made it personal. It was about me. He created the universe with all these people in the, in the whole world. He loved me. And he gave his son for me. My hope and my prayer today is that you would see God's love for you personally and how that changes absolutely everything. I want to show you this as we walk through the story that Jez read, the story of uh, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, a short account. And it comes, as Jez was saying, at the end of Jesus' life, towards the end. He knows he's about to die, and the religious leaders have basically had enough of him, and they found a way to kill him. And Jesus knows this, and he's in the garden for a bit of respite before he's going to be arrested, tried, and then hung on a wooden cross. And I think this account of him in this garden here gives us a real depth of insight to his death and why he died. Let me show you this. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. Let me read through this and I'll explain it as we go. Uh, it says there that then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, just a garden. And he said to them, to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I'll pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, this is the first time, really, where Jesus is being troubled. So the rest of Jesus' life, he's, he faces attempts on his life, betrayal. He faces the spiritual world, demons, Satan. Uh, and, and he's never flustered. If you read the Bible, he's never flustered, Jesus. He's always in control, fearless, unshakable, calm and strong. But here we read something is very different. It's very different. Uh, I don't know if you, if you could see it there, but he says how he's feeling. He says he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point, so much so, he's so overwhelmed, he's the point of death, he says. Now Jesus isn't the sort of guy who ever states things for shock value, right? Uh, he was the guy who was uh, on a boat and he slept through a storm. The guy who faces demons with calmness. The guy who faces death threats from the religious leaders and says, you can't touch me, my time hasn't come yet. Jesus isn't one to over-exaggerate things. And here, he's speaking what he's feeling. In this moment, hours from knowing that he'd be hung on a wooden cross with nails to his hands and his feet, his soul is in deep turmoil, he says. He is gripped with a shuddering terror. To the point of death. So much so, it says that he can't even stand anymore. Look at sentence 39. He says, going a little farther, he fell, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. Here we see Jesus, the, the normally cool, calm, collected Jesus, more human than ever. But the question really is why? What, what's going on? What is exactly the thing that is causing him to, to be overwhelmed to the point of death? He knew he was going to die. He told his, no, his followers a number of times, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to go to the cross, be betrayed. 
even before he came to earth, when he was in, in, in heaven with his Father, it was determined that he would come and bear God's judgment for sin, for him to be the Savior of the world, to pay for sin in our place as our substitute on the cross. That was planned long before he came to earth. It doesn't seem like he's afraid of dying. He actually led his followers to Jerusalem. He knew that he would never leave Jerusalem ever again because he knew the leaders would take him there and kill him in Jerusalem. He's not afraid of dying. So what's going on? Why is he so overwhelmed here? I think we, uh, I think we get it from the, what he prays at the back half of sentence 39. Have a look at this. It says, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Not, not, I as, not, I, not as I will, but as you will. See, here in the garden, Jesus is the one who has come to save. He, he, he's beginning for the first time to confront the ultimate and deepest agony of dying on the cross. And it's not the idea of dying and the physical pain, so asphyxiation of hand, uh, uh, not being able to get oxygen in your lungs from hanging on the cross. That's not the fear here. What's causing him deep, deep anguish is the fact that he's about to face the full anger and wrath of God, his Father, for the first time. And because of that, he'll be abandoned and forsaken. See, Jesus being with his dad in heaven, his Father in heaven, he knows, he's the only one who knows God fully, and he knows what it means to face the full wrath of God and to be abandoned from his father. And this terrifies him more than any physical, uh, physical element of, of death. And here Jesus falls and he prays and he begs. He begs his dad for another way. He says, take this cup away. Not just once, not twice, but three times he asks his father for another way. Sentence 39, we read, he says, If it's possible, may this cup be taken away. Sentence 42, he says, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may it will be done. He's asking this question. He's saying, God, please, let there be another way. Father, let there be another way for me having to do this. That's what he's asking. The normally composed Jesus is repeating himself again and again. You can feel his terror and feel he's overwhelmed. And he's calling out to his dad for help. He's on his face begging, pleading. In Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus actually, uh, Mark accounts that Jesus is actually sweating drops of blood. He is that overwhelmed with what is going on, with his anguish. But what, what is this cup that is causing Jesus so much trouble? This cup is, is actually picked up in the, in the Old Testament, so before Jesus came. And it's a reference to the, the anger and the wrath of God against sin and evil in the world. For human evil, for sin, for my sin, for your sin. It's God's righteous anger at our rebellion for how we've treated him and ignored him and rejected him. That's what this cup is. Now you might be thinking, well, why is God so angry? I thought God was a God of love. I, well, why is there wrath here? Couldn't God just forgive and move on and get over it? I thought God is love, right? That's what we've been thinking. And God surely can't be both full of wrath and full of love at the same time. Those two don't fit together. This question of God's wrath and God's love gets right to the heart of the cross and Jesus' death. 
But let me illustrate. See, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation or a dilemma where you've had like two roles to, to be at the same, to, 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 to be, but you couldn't do, do them at the, both at the same time. This happened to me when I, uh, I decided to be the coach of my wife's soccer team. I had to be both husband and soccer coach together at the same time. I had to switch hats. Now, sadly, as, uh, as my netball team knows that I play with, I am way too competitive. I'm way too competitive. I love winning way too much, and I hate losing. And I'm trying to change this, but I took this mantra into my coaching arena, my coaching career. Now, the only problem was, uh, uh, um, the, the issue was, there were a lot of girls who had never played soccer before that I was coaching, and their phrase was, I just want to play for a bit of fun and laughs. In my thinking, you don't play competitive sport for a laugh. You play to win and crush your opponent. That's why you play sport. So coaching this team was hard, uh, but it was also hard because I had to try and figure out how to wear my coach's hat and my husband hat at the same time. I didn't want to show favorites to my wife, and, and I always got a bit confused. And, I, and this was seen on a few occasions where uh, uh, the first time was when Katie and I, my wife, were driving to training one night, and I was frustrated with the team they weren't training hard enough. And I said to her, Katie, the team's not training hard enough unless they're vomiting. And she's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and then, uh, that didn't go down so well. I don't know why it didn't, but it didn't go down so well. And the other time was where we went to the park for a kick around. I probably saw it more as a one-on-one intense coaching session. <laughs> Katie thought it was a kick around and a run out of the park. She was wrong. And uh, anyway, we just ended up fighting, having to go home, and we both got angry at each other and left it. We never went to the park again and played sport again. Um, but, but for me, I couldn't do both. I couldn't be both a husband and a coach at the same time. For me, these two roles were opposed against each other. When it comes to God and what he is like, it seems to, be that he can't be, it seems to us that he can't be both loving and full of wrath at the same time of its sin. It's what is known often as the divine dilemma. God can either be angry at sin and punish it, or he can be kind and loving and forgive, but he can't do both. He can't be at the same time. And this, and this, from our perspective, should cause God a huge problem, because God can't be anything else than who has revealed himself to be. And this divine dilemma comes really about from this idea that God, firstly, is just. God isn't indifferent to evil and to, and to wrong and to sin. He's not indifferent to that. Last week we heard Jez say this. He isn't indifferent to sin. In fact, he's righteously opposed to it because it's a direct attack on him. He can't simply overlook it. In light of who he is, his holiness, his majesty, his bigness, his goodness, his justice, there's no alternative for him but to bring justice and punish wrong, evil, and sin. He has to do that. That's who he is. See, imagine a court where a judge simply overlooked everyone's offenses and just said, it's fine, move on, forgive. He'd quickly be kicked off the bar and quickly kicked out as a judge. He's not administering justice. That's his role. We want judges and rulers to do that. God is the judge of all. He is just. And he will bring about justice. And he will punish evil and he will punish sin. That is who he is. But there's a problem. Not only is God just and the judge, he's also full of compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness. God's desire is to save. God's desire is to love. Micah, Old Testament Micah 7.18 says, God delights in showing mercy. 
He delights in showing mercy. He made people to know him, to enjoy him and a relationship and the stuff he made for them. But how can he forgive, which he delights to do, when sin is a direct attack on who he is? So there's this dilemma here. This is God's dilemma. But I want to show you his solution. And it's brilliant. It's the cross. It's the death of Jesus. See, because of God's amazingly gracious heart toward us, those who deserve to face judgment, humanity, you and I, for how we've treated him, God planned and provided a solution to the dilemma. He solved his own dilemma. Out of his great love, God gave his one and only son, Jesus, the innocent one, to die in our place as our substitute to bear the penalty for our sin, to take on the wrath, to take on the justice, to save us. Jesus took our place. The punishment for my sin was poured on Jesus. The wrath that I should have borne was poured on him. My debt was paid in full. He drank the cup of God's wrath for me. He died in my place. See, on the cross, we see God's justice and his mercy meet. His wrath and his love collide on the cross. Romans 3.26 says, God shows himself to be both just and the justifier. A writer, R.C. Sproul, says this on the screen. The glory of the cross or the gospel is this. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saved us. Or another writer, John Stott, says this. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. In Jesus, the divine dilemma is, is, is resolved. God's justice is seen and shown in his punishing his son. Jesus is taking our sin for us. Justice is poured out there. But forgiveness has also brought his love and his mercy is shown through what Jesus did on the cross. And the cross is the clearest picture of what God is fully like. He's holy, he is just, he is right, but he's also loving, kind, merciful, and forgiving. This is who God is, and the cross shows us that. But at the start, I also said that the cross also shows us who we are. We see what God is like. What are we like? Who are we in light of this? Let me take you back to the garden to finish this up and show you what the garden shows, or shows us about who we are. We left it where Jesus was praying three times, any other way, anyway, and he was begging with his Father to make it happen. It's interesting that throughout Jesus' life and his time on earth and before that, every time he turned to his Father, God the Father, and asked him for help, for prayer, when he went to him, he was flooded with love. Uh, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, a voice came from heaven and it said, This is my son whom I love, in, in, in whom I am well pleased. God loves his son. And every time the son, Jesus, looked to his dad, he was flooded with love and reminded of his love. But here in the garden, he turns to his dad for help. And all he can see is God's wrath and God's anger. Jesus knows the Father is the source of love and life and light, and therefore exclusion from this is an exclusion from those things. And Jesus looks forward, uh, forward to a few hours, and he sees an abandonment that is coming, and he staggers in fear. One commentator writes, Jesus entered the garden to be with the Father for a quick interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. 
This is begged three times to his dad, and every time there is silence. No response. God the Father painstakingly doesn't respond to his son's plea. But silence. And remember, this, this, this father loves his son. God delights in his son. He loves him deeply. We read, out, we read throughout the whole Bible that, that God loves his son. And here though, even though he loves him, he ignores his son's cry. The question has to be asked though, why would a loving father who loves his son so much ignore his son in one of the greatest hours of his need? Why would he do that? Let me show you. Have a look at the screen. It's this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he was silent to his son's agonizing appeal for another way. This is God's love for you. For you. He loves you personally, who you are right now, so much that he turned his, his face away from his son, whom he loves, from his appeal. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross to pay for your sin, past, present, and future. Did you notice, though, what Jesus prays for after, uh, what Jesus says after he prays for another way? He says, uh, he says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We want to make sure that we know that Jesus isn't being forced. This is not sort of some sort of divine child abuse going on here. This is not an angry father forcing his poor, weak son to do something that the son doesn't want to do. Jesus is saying here, I don't want to do it, but dad, your will be done. If you want me to face your wrath for the sins of the world, I'll do it. Jesus is willing to do it. What's crazy is that Jesus could at any point say, Dad, look, it's, I didn't sin. I didn't do it. They did it, not me. Why are you punishing me for? I don't deserve this, but he didn't. Jesus freely stands in our place for us. See, do you know what the cross tells us about ourselves? The cross screams out to us, God loves you. The cross tells us that we are fully holy and deeply loved by the creator of the universe. You personally. The author Tim Keller that I really like writes this. He says, The cross tells us uh, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we've ever dared hope. You, know, you could sub your name in John 3.16 if you wanted to. For God so loved Gav that he gave his only son. For God so loved Kate that he gave his only son. You put your name in there. This is what the cross screams out to you today, and this is what the creator of the universe wants you to know right now. No matter how you are feeling, no matter where you're at with him, he wants you to know this. We often get God so wrong, I think. We often even think that we're not good enough for God, or we need to do better, or our standing with him is based upon my life and what I've done. The mystery of Christianity is Jesus good enough because we can or never will be. And my standing with, Jesus, with God is based upon the finished work of Jesus. In World War II, there was a man named Ernest Gordon. 
who was a British prisoner of war in a Japanese prison camp. And during that time, the POWs were forced to build railway lines to transport the Japanese soldiers to the front to fight. Nearly 16,000 prisoners were killed in these camps. And Gordon, in his book, Through the Valley of Kwai, described this one occasion where it was the end of the day's work on this rail line, and the Japanese guards had collected all the tools, and they realized, they'd counted, and they realized there was one shovel missing. And so the guard worked himself into a fury and ordered that the, the, the guilty prisoner step forward for taking the shovel to receive his punishment. No one stepped forward. The guard then yelled out, all die, all die. Got his gun to his shoulder, was going to shoot down the line of the prisoners until someone stepped forward and admitted they'd done it. At that moment, one man stepped forward and said, I did it. The Japanese guard got the end of his rifle and clubbed the prisoner to death. As his friends carried away their friend's lifeless body, the tools were counted again, only to reveal there was no shovel missing. Can you imagine the effect upon the fellow prisoners of this man's substitutionary sacrifice for them on their behalf? See, Jesus is our substitute, is the innocent one who stands in our place out of his great love for us. This amazing swap takes place on the cross. Jesus says, I'll take your sin, I'll take your shame, I'll take your guilt, I'll take your brokenness. And I'll pay for it all. And he says to us, you have my perfect record, my perfect life, my perfect righteousness. You have my perfect relationship with my heavenly dad. It's all yours as a gift of grace. And now through Jesus, we can stand perfect with our God and call him our heavenly dad. And he calls us his forever loved children. I, I, I can now and always know that without a doubt I'm loved beyond what I can understand by God, that nothing he says in all creation could ever separate me from his love. Because of the cross, God says, I cannot love you anymore and will not love you any less. I can know that if God has done this biggest thing and given me his one and only son for me, that he will do all things and look after me in all situations. He will guide me. He will work with me. He will work for me. He says, I even gave you my Holy Spirit to live in you, to know as a seal that you are mine. I do, not need to, I do not need to fear because I know the creator of the universe is on my side and I can call him dad. I can know that my life and who I am is not based upon my mistakes, my failures, which are many, my guilt, my shame, but rather... Who I am is based upon how God sees me as his child. I'm free then to enjoy life by not making things my ultimate. I can know that I can, I can live this life enjoying the gifts that he's given me, but finding all my hope in him. And my meaning in him, because my God promises me there's way more to come in eternity. I want you to see today that God is saying to you, come to me as you are, but I love you. He's saying, Jesus has dealt with it all. I gave my son for you in your place. Come and know me. It's not about how good you are or how bad you are or where you're at. 
saying it's about me and my son. Jesus has faced the wrath of God for our sin. He's died in our place so that we can have a real relationship with our heavenly dad. And this is the message of the cross. This is the message. This is the central message of Jesus and Christianity. And this message of the cross has absolutely everything to do with you. I want to finish by praying. Father, I want to pray for all of us here. Father, I don't know where we are at or anyone's at here in this building. I can't know. You know. You said you've numbered the very hairs on our head. You know our thoughts, our everything about us. And you love us with a love that is relentless. And Father, I want to pray that we would see that and know that and understand that and respond in light of that. Lord, if we need to ask more questions, help us to do that. But help us to not leave here today by doing nothing. I want to pray for us who know you. I want to pray that you would revive our soul with this truth of Jesus, that that he would be the bedrock and the center of our lives. For those who are feeling distant, draw us in by your love and your grace. For those of us who don't know where we stand with you, we want to pray, Lord, that that you would empower us to take steps to know you, to even maybe give our lives to you, to follow you. I just want to thank you so much for Jesus and for the cross and for, for who we are in light of you. Lord, help us to keep knowing you more and more and understanding your love and help us to shape our lives and build our lives upon this fact. Thank you so much for Jesus. Amen.